um, I was reflecting on the uh, first movie that I ever saw um, in a movie theater. And um, I, I think, and I could be wrong on this, my parents may, may have a better memory than I do, but as I'm trying to remember the first movie my parents took me to in the theater, I think it was Pinocchio. And in case you're wondering how old I really am, um, you've got to keep in mind that movies in Malaysia are always delayed just a little bit as far as when they release. So I saw Pinocchio in the 80s. I don't know when it really released in theaters, but maybe it was a re-release. I don't know. But that's when I saw it. And um, I don't know the original story of Pinocchio. I know that it probably has some sort of folktale origin, but as Disney is wont to do, Disney takes these stories and sort of Disney-fies them, and sometimes for better or for worse. So my version of the Pinocchio story is the Disney version, um, and, and I'm going to guess that so is yours. So the story kind of goes like this. There's this old man who uh, is a lonely uh, clockmaker, woodsmith, and he makes this puppet, and, and then one day in the middle of the night, uh, this fairy or something comes to him and says, okay, look, I'm going to make you come to life, and if you learn to obey, you can be a real boy. And uh, so this is the whole point of the movie, is Pinocchio kind of learning or maybe striving to be or failing to be a real boy. As I was thinking about this week, we are in Acts chapter 2 this week, and this is the story of Pentecost. This is the story of the Holy Spirit coming like wind and fire upon the disciples, upon these first followers of Jesus in the upper room. And when we think of this story, we think of some amazing things. And I want to just unpack a few layers, hopefully, of this story as we read the text this morning. But, but think about for a moment this image here of the Spirit of God being like wind coming into this room, breathing into these followers of Jesus. These images kind of borrow from another maybe story that we know of. We think of maybe the story of creation. And you think of God when He makes this world and creates this material world, and then He makes the human, Adam, the human one, and He breathes His breath into him, breathes the very wind of His own self, His life, into this dust, and it comes to life. That really this human one, the first human one, was really the only first truly human one. Adam and his wife, Adam and Eve, the Genesis story calls them. And I say that because when the fall happens, there's something that they lose that they are sort of less than human. C.S. Lewis, I love the way that he makes this point, but he repeatedly kind of makes this point to say, look, you should never, when you make a mistake, you should never say, I'm sorry, you know, after all, I'm only human. The truth is, if you were fully human, we would love perfectly. To be fully human is to be complete and perfect, to be like the first human one that God breathed his breath into. Technically, every time we fail and fall short, we are reminded that we are less than human. Now try that on next time. You know, next time, next time you kind of, you know, offend somebody, say, hey, forgive me, man. After all, I'm just less than human. I kind of look at you like, yeah. but there's something about reclaiming that language because it reminds us that to be fully human is not to be only spiritual, but to be physical and filled with the Spirit of God Himself. Sometimes this text that we're about to read here in Acts 2, sometimes it's taken by um, certain Christians to kind of be the, um, the way of saying that, look, see, God is all spiritual and there's nothing about the physical that he really likes. But do you know that's not Christian theology, that's Greek philosophy. 
This notion that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good, that's not Christian theology, that's Greek philosophy. Christian theology says a good God made a material world and made humans, the human one, out of the dirt of this material world and then breathed in it. So right from the start, as you frame, I want to frame the way you listen to this text because we're going to read this text of a wind blowing into these gathered disciples and we're meant to maybe think of God's work of redemption that is taking less than human ones and helping us on our journey to becoming fully human again. We're becoming a real boy and a real girl. Pinocchio, this is kind of us. I was also thinking as we set up this text that it's very easy for us to think about salvation or the Christian life as God does this and then I respond. You know, so it's a little bit like a chess game. You know, God has his moves and then I have my moves. And so sometimes preachers talk like this. They say, okay, God has done this and now here's your response, right? Sometimes worship leaders say this. Worship is our response to God. And there's a part of that that's true, but I think it's because we don't have a good theology of the Holy Spirit. When you don't have a theology of the Spirit or an understanding of the Holy Spirit, God is just this one sort of being and He acts or He speaks and He calls and now it's back on you to respond. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but it's sort of like someone saying to me, hey Glenn, you're going to run a marathon, but I'll take the first six. But I got the rest? Is the Christian life a relay race where God runs the first couple laps and gives you the baton and says, you got it? I've done all this for you. Ah, that's not going to translate very well in the podcast. <laughs> Jesse and Daniel and Laura, could you guys stand for me? Just, I'm not going like, to embarrass you. Well, I'll try not to. But kind of make a little triangle here. This is not a perfect illustration, but maybe you know, our first encounter with God is a little bit like this. We, we experience God the Father, and we say, oh, you're holy, you're the creator, and I'm a mess, and I'm a wreck, and what am I going to do? And then he says, well, look, here, I sent my son. He said, oh, Jesus, your, your name's Jesse. That's a derivative, yeah? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we say, here, here it is, you know, redemption, forgiveness of sins. And then most of the time, we stop right here, and we say, great, there's this holy God the Father, and then there's Jesus the Son who was sent, but wonderful but, but as we begin to turn and say, all right, now how do I live? And you realize that it's still impossible. You say, well, oh, but here's the Holy Spirit, the one that's the helper, the one that's walking alongside of us to give us the power to live. Thanks, guys. So when we think about this and we read this text, we have to change the way we even think about salvation. That the Christian life is not this, now God's done this for you, now what you got kind of thing. It's not... This, okay, God's saying, okay, I'm going to do all this. Now, how about you? It's your turn. The Christian life is us realizing that we are surrounded by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That that our walk with God begins, is sustained, and is brought to completion by God, God, God. Now, that's good news. That's good news because what we're exploring here about the Holy Spirit then all of a sudden is not just something to experience, but it's the very power of God, the third person of the Trinity, coming to dwell with us and in us. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. 
When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. And there were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the sound, a crowd gathered, and they were mystified, because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans? Now, that may not mean much to us, but that'd be sort of like, and I say Iowa because my wife is from Iowa, but that'd be sort of us like hearing these, you know, going to a, a Midwest farm town and hearing people all of a sudden burst out in Mandarin and, 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 in, and in Japanese and in Hindi and, and saying, well, aren't these like Iowa farmers? It was awkward in the first service because I used the example and my wife was right there and I wasn't sure if it was a good thing to do or not. I'll find out this afternoon and let you know next week. But this idea of aren't these people all Galileans, is, aren't these simple country bumpkin sort of folks? I mean, how do they know? These aren't cosmopolitan big city types, in other words. These aren't Jews who've kind of learned bunch of different, bunches of different languages. These are the fishermen from Galilee. How are they speaking in our language? How can each one of us hear them speaking in our native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya, bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we, de- we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. Now stop for a second. Why were they all in Jerusalem, these people? Because there was a festival going on, the festival of Pentecost. Pentecost, after all, is not, you know, we kind of know it is marked by the Pentecostal church and so this event and all stuff, but Pentecost is an old Jewish feast and it's this feast of harvest, it's this feast of, of, um, of the 50th day after Passover and, and it's, it's also the time when the law was given, all of this stuff and so, so they're, they're there in Jerusalem to celebrate this big feast. Travelers had come in from all these different cities and they're saying, look, we're, we're kind of the big city types. We're Jews who've gone away and have been dispersed and are living in these Greek cities and living in these other places and so we've learned other languages. We're sophisticated types, you know. Uh, not these country bumpkin Galileans. How are they speaking our language? This isn't Manhattan or London. This is Jerusalem. What's going on? And they were all surprised and bewildered, and some asked each other, what does this mean? And others jeered at them, saying they're full of new wine, which means they're saying they're drunk. One of the things to look at when we think about this text, just kind of as a backdrop here, is there are several phrases, several images, several things that are said that are meant to make you think of something else, maybe think of another story. And, you know, this is not all that strange. You know, we don't often read the Bible this way, but this is not a strange way to use language. For example, all of you that are, have been in Colorado for 10 years or maybe more, and you, let's say you're a Denver Broncos fan. If I say the phrase, the drive... What do you think of? John Elway, AFC Championship game, Cleveland Browns, 98 yards, sent it to overtime, Ernest Biner, fumble. I mean, you're going to think of all these different things because you know the story. But all I have to say is two words, the drive. 
In a very similar way, when Luke is telling the story, he's just going to mention a few phrases that are going to trigger all kinds of things. For one, when he says, look, they're all together, and then the rushing wind blows into the room, they're going to think about creation, maybe. Maybe they would have thought about Ezekiel's vision of the strange vision of like skeletons in a valley. Do you remember this? And then this wind blows and these bones start rising like a zombie movie or whatever. But then they get flesh and bones and muscles and God says, look, I'm forming an army. It's a picture of God bringing a new people. So the way Luke tells this story is a way of saying, look, a new community is coming to life here. A new people who really don't belong. They're kind of the misfits, but they're being breathed upon. But maybe this whole bit about languages is also meant to make us think a little bit about Babel. Because what happens at Babel, the story goes in Genesis that all the people gathered together to build this tower, right? And they, they were right, building this tower up to the heavens and God says, look, they're in of one mind and one heart. So there's great unity, but it's a unity sort of against God or apart from God. And God says, okay, look, let's scatter them and give them many languages. And so this is the description of how languages sort of develop according to the Genesis storyteller. Now, this story Babel and Pentecost. At Babel, languages become the thing that divide. But at Pentecost, languages become the thing that begins to unite. But in a different way, because they don't all start speaking the same language, do they? No. They start speaking each other's languages, which is really amazing and miraculous. Think of what that might mean for us even as a new church community. Too many times in this city, especially in Colorado Springs, you say the word Christian or evangelical, and everybody knows what that category is. Oh, I know what that looks like. That looks like this. And for whatever reasons, good reasons, bad reasons, legitimate reasons, not legitimate reasons, we, there's a category for it. What's amazing to me is when the disciples gather in the upper room from all these different places, they don't get homogenized. They don't get put through the factory belt and just get plopped out Christian. They don't. They retain languages. And this is one of the other things that's beautiful about when John has his vision of heaven. He sees the heavens open up and he catches this glimpse. And he sees people from many languages and tongues and tribes so wait a minute, aren't we just going to be all sort of glowing beings? I don't, it doesn't sound like it. Sounds like God loves differences and diversity and textures. Sounds like God loves the many hues of culture. Sounds like coming to Christ doesn't result in sameness, but it's redeemed differences. It sounds like coming to Christ, being the new people of God, does not mean becoming homogenized, vanillaized, in, vanillaized? No, vanillaized into this. I just had another 90s moment. Okay. But, but, but it, it means us with our distinctives kind of being formed as this new people. I think that could be something instructive for us as we, here we are downtown. Part of the reason we're here is to say what would happen if you know, new life, maybe we have our own kind of categories or, or stigmas or impressions or whatever. What if we have a presence that's in a different part of our city? What if it opens the way for different um, groups of people? What if 
in here, the Lord adds to us different cultures and personalities and political backdrops. And what if we are not homogenous? What if there are folks of us here that it almost feels like different languages sometimes? But maybe part of the miracle of the Holy Spirit is that we learn to speak each other's languages. Now think about that. That being part of church doesn't mean I make you speak my language, but that the work of the Spirit in me allows me to speak yours and to say welcome to the community. I don't know what it's like to be from Phrygia. Never heard of it, actually. But maybe the Spirit is empowering us in a new way to speak each other's languages. Think about that. Think about the beauty of that. As we look at this text, one of the things we want to ask ourselves is, okay, so, so, so what do we learn about the Holy Spirit from Pentecost? What does this story tell us as the people of God? How, how, how do we, what, what are we seeing here about the Holy Spirit? What's Luke trying to tell us about the Holy Spirit? And just two things that I want us to maybe think about this morning. One is this, that the Holy Spirit cannot be tamed. Wind and fire are disruptive forces. We Colorado people, we kind of know that. Unfortunately, we know about forest fires, little fire, lots of wind, bad news. I mean, we we, we kind of get that. So wind and fire are, are, are disruptive forces. That the work of the Holy Spirit is meant to make us uncomfortable. I'm blanking my mind on the name of this poet, but there's this poet that, that, that says that, look, we kind of come into church like it's this sweet sort of service, but we don't know what we're really messing around with here, that we really, they really ought to hand out crash helmets and safety belts when we walk into church. Because look at it, and I don't mean that we're going to have a crazy whoop, I just mean we're dealing with the living God. We're dealing with a God who doesn't stay afar, but a God who disrupts our lives and says, look, you can't keep living this way. A God who says, look, it's not, it's not okay to have these barriers and these, these uh, um, lines of, of, of demarcation. I'm disruptive of that. The Holy Spirit cannot be tamed. I grew up um, in, in Malaysia, and my um, parents, when they got saved, well, my mom sort of grew up going to an Anglican church. My father grew up Hindu, and um, he met my mom at the University of Singapore, and when things were getting kind of serious, she says, well, I, I'm not going to marry anyone who's not a Christian. He says, okay, well, I can change that. And um, it's maybe the quickest conversion story from Hinduism to <laughs> Christianity ever. I mean, Hindus, uh, Hindus historically do not convert easily. Um, they just add Jesus to, to the, the list of gods. And most of my father's um, side of the family are like that. So for him to convert easily, I don't know, my mom must have been quite persuasive. Um, but he converted and they, they started attending this Anglican church. And I was, um, I was there until I was about eight years old. And my parents were, as uh, the faith began to be more serious to them, they began to be discipled by this amazing uh, Baptist pastor who took them on and did this Bible study with them during the week. And, and then somewhere along the way, maybe I think my dad was on a business trip and, and the, ho- the hotel that he was staying at had a meeting by the Full Gospel Businessmen Association. You, you've heard of that? And, uh, and he found out about this thing, about the Holy Spirit and... and and uh, something sort of happened, and, and my mom, meanwhile, had experienced something similar to that. And so they came back to the Anglican church and tried to start a Sunday evening service at the Anglican church that was a spirit-filled Anglican service. Interesting, isn't it? And, um, and they were kicked out because they, after a while of that, they said, we, we, we don't really want this now. That, that's not 
true of the Anglican Church in general. That's just true of that local church at that time. And, um, and so we, they've um, moved over to this other church. And for the bulk of my life, from you know, ages 9 onwards, I have been part of what you would call a non-denominational, charismatic, or Pentecostal church. So I've grown up in this um, tradition that looks at Acts 2 and says, wow, look at this. This is huge. And it is. But the irony of growing up in this tradition is the very people who are um, proud of being the people of the Spirit seem to want to put the Spirit in a box. Because when we say the Holy Spirit cannot be tamed, it also means that He doesn't always follow the formulas or the patterns or the steps that you think ought to happen. A lot of times people take Acts 2 and say, okay, look, this is step one, step two, step three of how it works. You come to faith in Jesus, you repent, you're baptized, and then you, you fill the Spirit, and the evidence is you start speaking in tongues. And we start to tell people that this is how it works, when actually when you read the rest of the book of Acts, it doesn't work like that again. There are, a lot, there are other times, there's this moment where where Peter's in Cornelius' house, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them, and he says, wait, God, they're not even baptized. Whoops. <laughs> and Luke tells us all these different stories to say, you can't stop the Spirit's work. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for the people that you've drawn a circle around. It's going beyond this. It's going outside of this. And you can't step, make steps out of this little formula. You, you, you can't do this. In the same way, what happens at Pentecost is not really what Pentecostals call speaking in tongues. Because Pentecostals call speaking in tongues this idea of personal edification, speaking in a language that you don't understand and that nobody else understands, right? Personally, and as a church, as New Life, we believe that there is something like that. That Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He kind of talks about... There's this praying in the Spirit, and my mind is not fruitful, but when I do pray in the Spirit, I'm edifying myself. And then he says, and I pray in the Spirit more than all of y'all, just in case you're wondering. And then he talks about this gift of the Spirit, gift of tongues, where someone speaks in it, but then it requires an interpreter. There's no interpreters required at Pentecost, is there? In fact, it's the very opposite of it. That's the, the gift of languages that happens at Pentecost, is the fact that they can speak in other people's languages. So, I think we've got to be careful of trying to put the Holy Spirit in a box on both ways. Either by saying He cannot work in that way, or by saying He always works in that way. Does that make sense? In fact, when you read the New Testament, we want to, you know, academically kind of list, well, there's nine gifts of the Spirit, and there's nine fruit, and there's... There's way more than that! What about the Romans 13 list, where Paul says, look... Some of the gifts are hospitality. Maybe we should start a whole denomination that, is, that says that if you don't have people over for dinner, you don't have the Spirit. <laughs> Hospitalityism, yeah. You can be the bishop. <laughs> I mean, think about it. We are human and we are less than human. And so our tendency is to take the Spirit and want to kind of tame it up and box it up and say, look, he's my Holy Spirit. This is how he works. And if you don't have it, listen, every believer, when we come to faith in Christ, God breathes his breath into us. And it's going to show up in different ways. Sometimes those ways are 
very obvious and extravagant. And sometimes those ways are very quiet and hidden. It's the strength in a person to forgive when they shouldn't. Or the world says, how could you? I suggest to you that whether it's obvious or not, the Holy Spirit's work in us is always disruptive. It's always disruptive like wind and fire. It's just not always flamboyant. How about that? Always disruptive, not always flamboyant. The second thing we see about the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is that He gives us the power to proclaim Christ. Some of you, someone gave me a a, a note um, last week after the sermon, and I was talking last week, Acts 1, about learning to wait and how waiting forms us into the people of God and how learning to be is is kind of the, the goal rather than the means to the end. You know, church is not God's sales and marketing team. Church being the people of God is the end goal. This, God wants a people for himself. And someone gave me a note card. Well, aren't you going to talk to us about proclaiming Jesus and announcing the gospel to our friends? And I wanted to say, well, just wait. Acts 2 is coming. Here we are. So the curse of being a preacher sometimes is you have to say everything you believe in every sermon. Otherwise, people think you're a heretic, you know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't work that way. Just wait. We'll get there. <laughs> so here we are. Acts 2. Holy Spirit gives him power to proclaim Christ. Next week, up at the North Campus, there's a guest speaker, and so I, I have the choice to go off topic or stay in it. I'm going to stay in the Acts series, and next week, talk about Peter's sermon, and to look more closely, what does it mean to proclaim Christ? What does it mean to announce Jesus as both Lord and Messiah? But today, it's enough to say that the Holy Spirit is the power to proclaim Christ. Now, think about Peter. This is Pentecost. This is seven weeks after Easter. This is, you know, not that long after, you know, a month and a half, almost two months after Peter, in the middle of the night, was too scared to confess Christ to a servant girl. And now, all of a sudden, Luke wants us to see, here's Peter standing up at nine in the morning to thousands of people proclaiming Christ. Who is this guy? What happened? Luke's trying to tell us that's the difference the Holy Spirit makes. It's the power to proclaim Christ. And you're going to need it. Because these people say right away, I mean, we think of Peter's sermon and we think of how they respond by saying, what must we do? But before his sermon, they start speaking in other languages. You would think they would be impressed. But Luke tells us that they start to mock them. Can I tell you that just because you learn to speak the language of our culture doesn't mean they won't reject what you have to say? I, 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 I have my, maybe my generation, maybe sub-35, I don't know what it is, but there's this incredible desire to really speak in the language of our culture, and I think that's powerful, and that maybe is part of the Acts 2 picture. But sometimes we forget that that just because we speak in their language doesn't mean they'll not mock what we're saying. It's not... No, <laughs> on the flip side, that doesn't mean you need to be obnoxious. You don't have to be jerks. Paul elsewhere says, look, as far as it's possible, live at peace. Don't go stirring up trouble and picking fights and protesting. and Settle down. Okay? But when you do speak with boldness and proclaim Christ, there's going to be opposition. Luke, like a good storyteller, has set up the rest of the story of Acts with this first little episode. Episode 1 contains the hints 
of the whole season that is ahead for us. It's like that new TV series where you think, well, what's gonna, how is this going to unfold? You know how it's going to unfold? The gospel is going to spread because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to carry it to people that they didn't think he was going to carry it to, but he's going to, and yet there's also going to be opposition, and so the people of God are going to need the power of God to do it. So there's opposition, there's mockery, there's something in the way. Maybe we should get rid of that American myth that says, when something just isn't working out, that eh, maybe it's just not the Lord. Maybe we need to dispel that. that I think that belongs to a religion of optimism and not to the Christian faith. Because the followers of Jesus have always run against opposition. Always. The gospel reading this morning, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Nice, be as nice as you can. Give away as much furniture as you want. Feed as many hungry people as you can. They're still going to find a way to say something about you. So we're not, we're not running a campaign to get them to like us. We're asking for the power to proclaim Jesus in a language that they understand. Does that make sense? And when you proclaim Jesus, there'll be opposition. There will be that. There will be things that say, no, 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 hey, you can't do that. Hey, you can't say this, you know. We're, we're against bullying of any kind, except we can bully Christians. It's going to happen. But the Spirit is the one that gives us the power to proclaim Jesus. I, I don't know if you've ever had the... Um, moment maybe as a child or maybe as a parent when you, you give your child a gift for Christmas or maybe you were this child, you know, a birthday or Christmas and you, it's this amazing toy that you were waiting for and you were hoping for and whatever the toy is, you know, and, and, um, and probably the best toys don't require batteries but some of the toys, a lot of the toys these days do and so you give this toy to your child and then they open it and they're all excited about it and then all of a sudden you realize... I didn't buy the batteries. What am I going to do? This Christian life is not like that. It's not a batteries not included kind of thing. And Jesus knows we're going to feel this way. That's why he says to his disciples, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm not going to leave you in this world that is against you trying to figure this out on your own. I'm not going to call you to be the people of God and then just sort of let, it, let you figure it out. Gordon Fee, the great New Testament scholar, calls the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. Think about that. Everything that God has called us to be and called us to do, He gives us the power to be and to do through the Holy Spirit. Everything that God calls us to be and to do, He gives us the power to be and to do through the Holy Spirit. That's why I say with this, that little awkward illustration of the three people, you know, we've, we've got to break down our non-Trinitarian thinking where it's me and God. God's up there and He's done this and then I've got to do this back. And instead reclaim 
the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in which the reality in which we are immersed and we're surrounded and you can't escape it. And it means that every day when you wake up in the morning and you say, God, how can I do this? How can I live this way? How can I have the strength? He says, I'm filling you up again. Now be fully human. Now be alive again. Now live again. See, Pentecost Acts 2 is not about trying to recreate the Pentecost experience. How many times in charismatic or Pentecostal circles we read this chapter and we think, "Woo, let's try to recreate the Pentecost experience. We're not, Acts 2 is not about recreating the Pentecost experience. It's about recognizing that the power of God has come to be in you. God's empowering presence is in you and with you to be and do what he's called us to be and do, the people of God. This is setting the stage for this whole rest of the series as we, as, we, as we walk through Acts to look at it together. In the creeds, we confess, we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Do you know the phrase? The Lord, the giver of life. Think of that. 